Hi, this is Steven Soderbergh. I'm here with Jim Cameron. Jim Cameron here. And we're going to uh, try and talk you through this. I want to talk about how you first got interested in pursuing the rights to remaking it, but I'm thinking I'll hold off until the lengthy docking sequence where we can get into that. <laughs> exactly. But I do want to talk about initially um, how... This is the low-key Lightstorm logo. The low-key, the smaller to... Lightstorm exactly. logo, which you yeah. wanted. I can only imagine that, that this version of the film was different than a version of the film that you might have directed in its sort of minimalist... Fewer car chases. Exactly. Fewer gunfights. And yet you seemed very you supportive so of of my choices here. Was there any point at which you I felt, gee, is, uh, is he really going to go that small? I would No, I was intrigued. Well, first of all, I, I love producing because it gives me a chance to see how other directors process the whole idea of putting up something in front of an audience. I mean, I saw it as, as buying into your buying into your process and, you know, the, the much overused term vision, but, but, you know, you had such a clear-cut idea of what you wanted to do with this film right from the get-go. And, uh, you know, I knew from the first dinner that we had that it was going to be substantially different than what I might do or what another filmmaker might do, but it, but it sounded really intriguing, and I wanted to see that. And I think you were always pretty upfront that you were going to go, you know, you know, minimalist to, to use to use your word, but keep it very close to the characters and to the emotions and to the to the psychology of it, and let the size be, in a sense, the the inner landscape of, right. of these people. I've said many times in interviews that. Uh, if, well, I got to talk about the shot for a second. Okay? Which one? The, uh, well, the the one on the on the back of Kelvin. Right. Because you do that a number of times, and I love it because it's it's it, it's the strangest thing. It's better than a POV because a POV is just a shot. And the audience doesn't know it's a POV. But when you're on the back of a character, you're seeing what they're seeing, but you're also kind of, in a sense, your consciousness projects through the back of their head, and you become them, too. It's really cool. It's like not an over-the-shoulder, not a POV. It's like really interesting shot. I like it. Well, I know that's not true. I, because I know you, and I know it's not true. Shot from Clute, I think there's a great It's Clute. It's very Clute. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Absolutely. When Charles Schiaffi is listening to the tape recorder yep. in his office. But I've told people in interviews that if they don't, if they're not able to sort of lock into the rhythm of the movie in the first 10 minutes and like how the character is being laid out and how the narrative information is being revealed, then they should just leave because it's not going to get any better. Yeah. Well, it's about his, his, you know, isolation from the rest of the human race. Even before he goes into space, the interesting thing, he's already in outer space in a sense, psychologically. He's so isolated from other people, even though his job is to be a kind of paid empath or a paid compassionate person. You know, he's just, he's lost that ability in a sense. That's one of the reasons I think we chose to not indulge in product placement, big establishing shots, showing what city we're in, what right. year it is. The Blade Runner approach. Right. Yeah. Uh, which has been done really well by a lot of people. Yeah. And I don't know. I have a theory that despite the fact that we uh, will have more and more ways to communicate in the future, that uh, it may actually be a very isolating place to be. Yeah, I think you see that happening now. I mean, people communicate by email instead of the telephone because it's easier for them because they don't have to connect. They can just say what they want to say and, and, and that's it. 
interface. I think that the more the more we add technology as an interface between ourselves, the less communication in some ways happens of, of an emotional nature. And I think you've captured that feeling in these early scenes. I mean, people don't even really talk to each other. They talk to telephones. They screens are talking to them. All right. their information is coming back and forth in some, you know, electronically mediated way. I need your help. I need you to come to Solaris, Chris. I don't know how to describe. Now, this um, this was a reshoot. This uh, Jabarian message, I yeah. think, a sort of critical reshoot in the original uh, cut. The message was just sort of a random recording that Jabarian had made. Clearly, it indicated a person under some amount of duress, but it was clear to us that we needed a more direct setup and that I felt Kelvin needed an emotional reason to go, right. not just an abstract Yes, and, th and you made that connection because it's his friend, and his friend asks him to go. And, and, and uh, you know, Ulrich is very appealing in that way, you know. So you, you get it, you know. And, and the funny thing is that it, it plays off of stuff you shot with George, who was reacting to the, the old message. Yeah, but it still well, it works. sort of proves the the Eisenstein exactly uh, theory of cutaways, right? And that's one of the one of the ways in which we departed from the book. Obviously, is that um, Calvin and Jabarian had a pre-existing relationship on Earth in our version of the film, and right. uh, that's not the case in the book or the Tarkovsky. But I think you've taken a number of, of opportunities, probably every opportunity, to try to create an emotional basis for why things happen as opposed to a, a philosophical one. The book was very, very philosophical in that scientifically philosophical, if you will, very kind of 60s science fiction. It was dealing with the nature of matter in the universe and the limits of of knowledge, and and you you kind of touch on that stuff, but you're but you're saying there are limits to our knowledge of ourselves. You know, it, it's taking that idea of uh, that that Lem was, you know, Lem was reacting to quantum physics, you know, and the Heisenberg uncertainty principle and all that stuff, and you took it and made it about the kind of the human uncertainty principle, which is I think infinitely more interesting to people. Well, and I know that we retained some of that. And and I ended up in editing, uh, stripping out even the few occasions where those lengthy philosophical discussions uh, occurred, because I felt at the end of the day that that we were trying to make an emotional film that had a very clear through line, and that um, it wasn't uh, it wasn't appropriate for for our version of the film. Well, I enjoyed watching your journey making this film because clearly you started out closer to the Lem novel. You had you had quite a fair bit of dialogue from Gordon and from Snow about the and and from Jabarian about the nature of reality and matter and the subatomic particles that were involved and what Solaris was and and all that. And that was very much like the book and and a bit like the Tarkovsky film as well. And I I, I just saw you sort of pruning that stuff away and, and finding what you wanted the film to be about. So here's our opportunity to really well, this pontificate is the, it. The, uh, the infamous docking sequence, which uh, those of you watching will be shocked to know used to be literally twice as long <laughs> as it is here, if you can imagine such a thing. And also it had various, I, I experimented with various types of uh, music over this. Some of them pretty odd, but interesting that I may revive uh, in another movie. The you most, had a Pink Floyd cue. I had a Pink right. Floyd cue, which was really 
terrific. We had Velvet Underground, Venus and right, Fur, which right. uh, I wish you could see. It was pretty interesting. That actually worked on a, on a lot of levels. Except for the lyric. I, I had a, a, an issue with the with yeah. the lyric. I remember, yeah, yeah. Um, but it had a it had a great uh, what what was it that uh, that we liked about that? Oh, because it, it basically said that it was going to be a journey into the subconscious. Right. And then I had a Beck cue here for a while, round the bend. And you convinced, I was going to go with the song here, and you convinced me that we should go with score, not only because I think Cliff had written a cue, which I, I really liked a lot, but I was thinking it would be a great idea to use a source cue because it would indicate to people that this wasn't their father's science fiction movie. Your, Your point was, right. we don't want to tip that hand 10 minutes in. Right. Why don't we wait and let that understanding come more gradually? I think you were right. Yeah, let it be more subversive. Yeah, yeah. Because it, you know, the thing I like about it is that is that the film promises to be a journey on a physical plane, and it turns out to be a completely different type of journey. So it's a bait and switch thing that I think you know works really effectively now. one of the many sets that uh, Philip Messina did he a did terrific a, job designing. He, he did a spectacular job. This film has a great look. And uh, I get to say this, which is a good thing about doing this as a, as a kind of a duet. Uh, you did a spectacular job lighting these sets, too. I really like, I always commented that I really liked the colors and the tones on the on the skin. And, and uh, it felt very clinical and very, it was very plausible lighting, but it was always so good for their faces. Now, Phil and I talked a lot about palette, which, you know, is something that's that's normal to do with your production designer. But I think in this case, we were being very, very, very picky. Mm -hmm. And uh, more than any other film, I think I said to a lot of people, including myself, it can be better or let's try something different. Yeah. Often having to go back and repaint or there are these tiny little latches on each of the panels that you see in all of the hallways which were a last minute addition that I requested right, right. just before we started shooting you had you had detail anxiety you you needed more detail yeah set. exactly <laughs> um, but the tones are so good for the you know the only thing that, that that's human in it are his hands and his face everything else is all in these cool grays and blue grays and green grays and it feels very kind of medical and clinical and uh, you know it's just such a great great choice This was another um, edition of ours, these, the, the bodies, and uh, I think I was looking, this came, I think, in the last, in the last draft that I did. I think, you know, we were trying to find a way to increase the, the element of mystery for the audience of, right. of what he's right. getting into. If you view uh, the whole movie as a sort of dream in a way. I always liked the idea that, that things get worse and worse. As you as you get further into the dream, the imagery and, and the things you discover become sort of more and more loaded. Right. Now he gets there and his friend is dead. So, you know, now he's now that he's now he's gone. A, now he's adrift. It's like yeah. what am you know, now now what do I do? Now what's my mission? You know, the thing I came here to do is now out the window. 
But, uh, you know, the tension here is great, and the sound design is really nice for it, too, because it's so kind of sterile. It's just air conditioning. You're not, you're not trying to pump the tension with music, and somehow that's more effective than if you'd, if you'd scored that tension. And then when you hear this kind of music coming down the corridor, it's like, well, somebody's here, you know. Now, Larry Blake, my sound designer, and I talked a lot about that, and we were prepared to go in a very, I think, Lynchian layered way and decided I think about halfway through that we were going to just keep it pretty simple that in most of these environments that I've been in it is mostly it's air conditioners and those fans that right. keep hard drives cool yep. and that's kind of it you yep. know they kind of overwhelm all the little detail sounds and we also found that whenever we tried to lay sort of more detailed sounds over scenes that it fought the dialogue so much that it became distracting. Right. Sorry about that, Calvin's names, you know, just... He is, he is so good. Jeremy really is, uh, is amazing here. And uh, the way that he manages to get the audience in the palm of his hand so quickly is, is pretty, pretty cool to watch. Whose blood is that leading to the... Well, um, there'll be some people who won't be surprised to hear that basically that I knew who Jeremy was obviously and liked his work a lot but what absolutely convinced me to cast him in this part was a homemade videotape that he'd done of himself as Charles Manson for a project that he was being considered for right and he'd Which he got yes yeah. and then the the project hasn't happened but he'd gotten some transcripts of Manson's speeches and then had done some improvising of his own and i saw this tape and it was so amazing that i said well we got to hire this guy and i think a lot of that i think a lot of that sort of dripped into the characterization of snow and his whole mental process is in his hands you can just see how he starts a thought and then goes in another direction and thinks of something else and you can just you can feel his the clock rate of his brain running at about twice normal speed Don't know. We do know that he's not on a ship. Uh, if you're listening to this commentary, I can only assume that you've seen the film before. So I can say that I gave Jeremy a lot of leeway with his characterization because, as we know, he's not Snow. Right. He's improvising and has no idea or no way of knowing whether or not he's a he's being accurate or not, which I think makes him a little more nervous than you or I might be. Right, because if you know the story, he didn't even have much overlap with his uh, with his prototype. About 30 seconds, yeah. <laughs> exactly, during which time the guy was trying to kill him. So uh, he's making this stuff up. Yeah, exactly. But, so here you have a, a, uh, a non-human entity in a not very human environment, in a kind of extreme environment, with only a few people around as examples, and he's trying to humanize himself, in a sense. And I also, when, when he's in scenes with, especially the scene later on in the conference room, I cut away to him a lot to, to indicate that he's monitoring the behavior of the other people in the right. room, sort of right. trying to assess how he's coming across, trying to assess how they interact, which is sort of a second viewing thing, yeah. but yeah, fun absolutely. to look at. But speaking of cutting rhythm, I mean, your cutting rhythm was really interesting in, in, in this film. You played an awful lot of stuff completely off 
George Clooney, which, you know, I mean, Hollywood's conventional wisdom, obviously, is if you, you know, if you have a big star, he's the anchor, everybody else kind of orbits around that. But you have, you have entire scenes that basically play on the other character. And I, I like that because it, there's this sense of great confidence. So you're going to know, you're going to know, George didn't just leave the room. He, I mean, Kelvin is still there. His character is still there. But it's a, th- th- actually, as we're talking about this, this is one of the more conventionally edited scenes in, right. in the film. But but if I think if if you if you look at it carefully, you'll see that there are long sections where other people would have been cutting back and forth, where you play it all just in a in a shot and hold it. That was a, a weird scene. It was out of the film for a while, and then it came back in because I felt we needed that introduction to Gordon, who's played by Viola Davis, who I've worked with twice before. Yeah, she's amazing. Yeah, and um, it was. It came in, came in late. Get it, was in, it was in early. It was out for a while, and then it came back in late. Well, there were aspects of that scene that you were uncomfortable with, and then when you figured out a solution for how to how to keep what you wanted out of the scene and get rid of the part you didn't want, then it wound up back in. But that I, I noticed that was your your process quite a bit. Is that you you try things out? Can I live without this? Can I live without this? And the film changed really an, an awful lot over, you know, I mean, things would come and go and come back in and, and you'd try them in different places. And I, I really saw the structure emerging in the cutting process in a way that was really quite remarkable. It just got tighter and tighter and tighter until... Well, and then there was one version that you thought was too tight. I remember I did, well, that's I did an 85-minute right. <laughs> cut of this and uh, and you came in and said, I think you got it at... Yeah, <laughs> something... It, but maybe, again, maybe something not quite that, that severe, but... Um, but but I like doing that. I mean, yeah. I like, you know, what's too far? Yeah. You know, yeah, what, exactly. what uh, because sometimes you pull stuff out that you think you've got to, you've just got to have it. And you look at it and you go, wow, I, maybe I do need to have it, but maybe I only need a third of it. Yeah. So much of, of what I see in cutting rooms when I, when I sit over the shoulders of friends of mine who are directors or producers and, and just kind of react to, to what they've done is very self-congratulatory. It's like, see what we did. Isn't it cool? I want to hear the good stuff. Tell me a couple bad things, but not too much. Whereas you are absolutely mercenary on your own, your own stuff. I mean, you'll, you'll take a scene that you absolutely loved at some point in the writing process or even, even reacting to the dailies or so on, just throw it away just to see how it works without it. I mean, it's completely experimental in the sense that you're willing to experiment almost endlessly, you know, and that's that's really cool. But it's not an endless process because it's a winnowing process yeah. and you you eventually start to focus in tighter and tighter on, on the things that, that ultimately are important to you. Well, I think that's where having a schedule is sort of <laughs> mandatory because that. you can, I mean, you can, especially in a movie like this, I mean, you can, you could go on for quite a long time trying right. stuff. How about you? How are you doing? But here's here's an example of what you're talking about. I'm shooting two cameras on both Viola and Jeremy simultaneously. I knew when we were doing it, however, that I wouldn't that I didn't want to see George. I just wanted to hear his voice since right. he's a a shrink, right? And wouldn't have wasted any time to turn around and get coverage on him, knowing yeah. that's not how it's going to be cut. Well, it's interesting because it, it breaks the normal movie rhythm and it becomes kind of almost like an interview, the way one would see in a documentary film where you hear this disembodied voice and the person's answering the questions. And so you're, you're constantly kind of playing with the, with the form of the, of the film, which I, which I really liked a lot. You know, you can go home. And with a shot like this, you know, I was trying throughout the film to not call attention to the effects. And in this case, for instance, I frame the shot as though 
that there's nothing extraordinary right. outside the window. Right, exactly. That if he were sitting in an office, I would frame it like this. And I figured then we should frame it like that here. And you just right. see a sliver of the planet. Of course, it still costs the same to do the effect. But, um, <laughs> yeah, see, I would it was I, I'd look at the cost for the composite and I'd say, I want to see you know, I want to see <laughs> full whole... frame. No, but see, that's very clever because because, you're, again, you're putting the you're putting the people in the foreground and you're completely understating the the effects. But Solaris is always there. It's always kind of in the background. It's in the it's in the fabric of of their reality there. And this is a shot that sort of to me makes me think of on this movie to my mind how crucial decisions about when to move the camera were. I just felt that the choices had to be very, very specific, and then I had to be very careful about when to move. There's, there's a psychological effect on the audience, obviously, when you move a camera right. quickly or slowly, and I was trying to um, really be careful about that. The camera doesn't move a lot. No. And usually only when the character is, is, is moving in tandem. But I don't know that I ever came up with a real concrete set of guidelines, but... I was trying to be careful. You know, you were very disciplined about about camera movement, and and you let the whole, let the held frame have some power in a way that, you know, filmmakers in general have just sort of been evolving toward you know more and more frenetic style, and uh, so you know this this was really a, a, a well you, you relied more on the power of the cut, and you can really see that in this where you're slamming from these full frame images of the of the planet to to him to. The inexplicable, you know, right. the doorknob. And the doorknob was an accident, right? It was or a total accident. We were shooting on the train with Natasha, and um, we, were, we were setting up the shot, and I said, "I, you need, you should have something in your hand. And she said, what? I said, I don't know. Just go to the prop truck and find something. And she came back with this doorknob, uh, <laughs> and I just, I thought that, that works fine. Now, see, um, now you've blown it. You're supposed to credit for these brilliant ideas. Some metaphorical... Uh, right connection you um, could read endlessly into the doorknob you know <laughs> well that's what i like i think right. i think i did recognize that when she brought back the doorknob that it was yeah. a, it was a, a great open-ended prop but these are the scenes that to my mind are are the most interesting in the film because they're what i call just pure cinema yeah. just imagery yep. pushing the story forward solaris as a silent but active participant in Kelvin's journey and I you know when I look at these sections of the film they're they're the pieces that I'm happiest with because they're nobody's talking yeah and nobody's telling you what's going on but but it's but it's undeniable that that Solaris is a player and, and, and an intermediary in some way in when what's happening in his dream state and yet you also realize that the dream is also a flashback or in some way represents something that really happened because it's so specific in its detail. And I, I remember you being very excited when you when you found the color palette that you wanted to use and the technique you wanted to use for the you know, flashback or the dream state scenes. And I think they work beautifully in counterpoint. And, and I think for the most part, audiences can really dis distinguish, and it's quite powerful in some of the later scenes, between the present day stuff that's happening on the Prometheus station and, you know, the, the stuff that takes place in his mind in the past. People had many problems with the film. I don't think that was one of them. I think they knew where they were. Yeah. 
I think you, you always felt oriented beautifully, and there, there's a scene later where she's remembering things that's, that's quite powerful, and, and, and it's as simple as the tones and the, and the type of camera, you know, handheld versus, versus static, that always orient you, and, and you're playing her reactions in the past versus in the present, and it's really pretty powerful. It's, um, well, it, it seems to be reacting, almost like it knows it's being observed. This was a scene that um, that I had a lot of trouble staging just because I wanted it to, again, I was trying to avoid these sort of traditional expositional shots and keep it as subjective and clean as possible. And it took me a while to figure out how best to do it. You see the scene now and it looks very simple and it is, but it was one of those cases where it took me a few hours to, to actually figure out how I wanted to do it. But and you shot you, it this way. I mean, it, there were, there were, I don't recall a lot no, of experimentation <laughs> in, in the, on the set. You just shot it this way. Yeah. Right. And then here you have a scene which is really difficult in any movie. A, mm -hmm. it's, it's the meet-cute scene. Right. And yet they're supposed to be fairly articulate, intelligent people. And there's a lot of... I think the, the actors always feel like, Jesus, if I'm not charming as hell here, then the movie's not going right. to take off. Right. But luckily, we had the the luxury of of blending the dream state and the flashback. I think to help take the onus off that a little bit. See, I like her right away because she's a tequila girl. <laughs> so <laughs> already, that's ten ten points right there. No, but she's but once again the restraint of never cutting to George. You know, it's interesting because it's almost like taking the baggage, quote unquote, that he might bring into it as an actor, having done so many other characters and, and using it to your advantage because you're just saying, all right, we know what this guy looks like. So we're going to focus on, on her. And, and she, when she's looking at him, we can fill his picture in in our mind. It's giving the audience a lot of a lot to do, you know, which is nice. I love this. I love this moment. The, well, this the, was the an touch. this was an improv on the location, there was a, a freight elevator that we were using to bring the equipment up. And I said, this is really great. I really like, yeah. let's shoot George going up and let's shoot them coming down. And we did two takes of them just standing there. And it ended up timing out wonderfully with, uh, with their dialogue. Right. But it was totally just off the cuff. Yeah, and a new relationship as a, as a metaphor for a descent into hell. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> No, I always thought that that was a magical moment. Now, again, this was a sequence in the in the first version of the film where it was very, very, couldn't have been more different in that he goes to sleep, she appears in the room almost immediately, comes to him, and there was one long, uninterrupted four-and-a-half-minute take of them making love on the bed, and then he wakes or she's there and he wakes up. Yeah, you should stick that in, in, the, in a special edition DVD at some point. Just, just... Well, I think if, if 10 years from now the movie is, is recalled in any way, that it would be interesting for people to see the first version of the film, which is, it's like the film and yet it's not. Yeah, it's, it's simultaneously more challenging and in some ways, if you're up for that challenge, more, even more satisfying. I know, I mean, I had a very positive reaction. And, and of course, once you live with a film, you can never have a blank slate. The first viewing is always the only time that you ever have a, an ultimately pure reaction to it, which is why I held back from 
you know, until you were ready to show the film, I didn't want to see scenes or bits and pieces, you know, I just wanted to see the, the whole thing. And uh, it was more nonlinear, but I always, I always felt that it had a kind of interesting integrity to it. So, you know, I mean, that might be an interesting thing to show people at some point. I think this film is... is uh, well, this is a much more emotional Much experience. more emotional, yes, exactly. This film really has a much stronger heart. This version of the film, I should say, has a much stronger heart to it. And I think that, you know, that's just your instinct in, in cutting it was to go more and more for the emotional connection, even to going back and, and shooting some additional scenes. Right. I don't, you know, and I'm, I'm, I feel so out of ideas when it comes to shooting sex scenes now. I just don't. I, I'm almost ready to give up. What do you do, what do, you do now? Yeah, exactly. I mean, we all know how it, we know how the equipment works. Yeah. I mean, what do you? I'm always looking for ways to to abstract it if I can. This, this is more of a general note, but it, and it doesn't really, even really apply to that scene. But did you do a lot of rehearsal with George and? and... No, we really didn't. My, uh, as time has gone on, I've become a believer in getting the actors together, but not necessarily going through scenes. I'll, I'll ask if anybody's got a real problem with a scene. But I tend to use that time as getting to know you. This is a nice moment. I like this. This is a hard thing to play, but I think he it's does a, it well. It's a really hard thing to play. And this, we, we shot this twice. I'm um, awake? No, I'm asleep. I must be asleep because this is impossible. But no, I'm awake. Oh shit, she's there. She's yeah. really there. <laughs> this, this took yeah. a while. I mean, it, yeah. this was something that on the set, we sort of ran through many times until George felt he'd found the right rhythm of it. And, uh, and then I ended up reshooting it Mm -hmm. because but I... But not for him. No, because I realized in the first version that I had, I'd given her the wrong direction, that he was he was much more aggressive in, in the first version of the scene, which made her fearful. And I realized that I, I didn't want her fearful. I wanted her blank. She's sort beautiful of, in the shot. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I wanted her to be a complete, you know, Raya yes. version 1.0. Right. And... So we redid it. Well, you wanted it's... you wanted a more disturbing quality to the scene because, which is good because he's obviously disturbed. He's he's upset. It's not just the, it's it's not just the fact that something impossible is happening. It's that he now is confronting what looks like his wife, but he knows it's, you know, because she's dead. He knows that she must be some kind of alien manifestation. So he's afraid of her, but we're not afraid of her because she's cool and interesting. Right. So you tried to find a way to make it kind of subtly disturbing, though, the way her responses are. Do you remember where we first saw each other? On a train. And she did a great thing. When I explained to her why we were doing this again and, and what I was looking for, she, she immediately locked into it and does a great thing coming up here with this sort of a, a blink that's not quite right, right, and it, and it's it's pretty creepy. I'm so happy to see. Yeah, but it's simultaneously one of her most beautiful close-ups. You know, she's tremendously appealing. I mean, I love this movie because it basically gets into the male psyche to the level it's like, well, a guy if 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 a, if a girl's cute. 
doesn't matter if she's made up of of some kind of you know antimatter, you know subatomic particles. We can, He'll we still want to fuck her. That, you yeah. know it'll be okay. <laughs> we can overcome that. Yeah, exactly. Well, and that's the point that Gordon makes later on. Yeah. Yeah, and that's so startling. Which is, which is you know, we have to. He has to take it for granted, uh, as well as us, that that Solaris has created her accurately. W- you know, we don't know if his memory can be trusted. Right. We don't know to what extent he's glossing over inconsistencies because he wants to. He wants to make it work, or he wants to right. find a way to make it work, right. because he's so compelled by the idea of her being here in whatever form. Yeah, I think the, the the place where where you really took a wide departure from from the you know the the two prior works, and and I think really brilliantly so is that you made the fact that she's a construct not only his problem but her problem at a really fundamental level at a at a level of you know kind of pure existential angst for her. I'm I know I'm not that woman that you know I'm modeled after, and I'm. In a sense, I am what you remember. So, you know, I think that that's not only, it's not only a great dilemma for a character that she's having to deal with and makes her tremendously sympathetic and, and appealing in a way where otherwise we might just be, you know, not, not relate to, to her problem. But I think it also has, you know, for me, and I'm, I, 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 the other good thing about it, doing this as a duet is that I can, I can throw in my, my, my bullshit metaphorical interpretations. And I love well, the fact that's, that... that's so- great for me because at some point I really need to figure out what, uh, what I did. Well, so, <laughs> well, what I did before this session was I just read a bunch of reviews so I'd, so I'd know what we did. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know that they would have helped. No, they didn't actually. But what I was going to say is that, is that you know, so many women deal with what their, the, the, this, the man in their life projects onto them in terms of expectation and so on. And so I, I, I felt in watching the film with an audience that women were responding to the film at least equally with the men. And that's because of that you created a compelling character for her with a compelling problem. What was that? Yeah. Here's a scene, you know, with Jeremy that's that's an indication of, uh, or an example of, of what I'll try sometimes in the editing room. The dialogue that you see in this scene actually has been completely inverted from what was written and shot. As it was written... They they get into the last part of the conversation right up front, and I decided that actually having George ask him about his visitor first and then gradually begin mm-hmm. to become mm-hmm. more mm-hmm. emotional, like right. he can't keep it together, was yep. more interesting. But look at look at you know I mean he he does so little overtly in this scene, and yet it's so clear what his emotional state is. It's really a nice piece of work for George, I think. Well, I think a lot of what he did in this film really opened people's eyes as to what, you know, his his potential as an actor. Oh, I think the look on his face when he sends her away in the previous scene is yeah. is really, really terrific. George talked about how friends who usually come to our sets find the atmosphere very... Uh, festive and how uh, people would would sort of open the stage door and walk onto the set to visit and get hit in the face by it was almost right. like a smell yeah exactly the the, the 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 emotional intensity that was coming from the actors and the crew that it was just 
is a nice scene, just comp. I mean, nice shot compositionally with Solaris looming overhead. You know, it makes it so massive, and they're so tiny. It's really shifted the balance. Well, that was one of those. You know, finding the uh, finding for ourselves the the look of Solaris was was kind of tricky because in the book and in the Tarkovsky film, it's an ocean. It's described yep. as an ocean yep. and referred to as an ocean. And I was trying to go for something that had a little more feel of, you know, synapses firing. Yeah, well, you've treated it al almost more like a gas giant, uh, which, you know, maybe even halfway to being a star with these big kind of solar prominence kind of kind of things. Design-wise, I think the planet's beautiful, but it's definitely active. You right. know, there's definitely something going on. And doesn't and, and it and it evolves. And it's yeah, look. there are, there are six six different stages that we mapped out. The color begins to shift. The activity on the surface begins to shift. The sort of tendrils mm -hmm. that surround it become more prominent. It's something that uh, those of you who are fast-forwarding through this will see uh, <laughs> more obviously. Brings out the red in my eyes. This is a nice scene. Well, these are uh, these three scenes coming up. This scene, the scene in the bookstore, and the scene on the uh, street are all scenes that I did in post-production because I felt the relationship wasn't being laid out well enough and the, the, the parallels between the relationship on Earth and the relationship on the, on the ship were not clear enough to the audience. So we went back and shot these scenes and I think they, you know, they went a long way to establishing what the connection was and that he was the one on Earth who was looking for the commitment from right. her. Right. That she had concerns about her ability to be in a successful, sustained relationship, and he's yeah. the one that was pressuring her. And he's very charming here, and, and what it does is it really shows you... The difference. The, it shows you the range of what George is doing in the in the film, and it it kind of invests you a little bit with, with Kelvin because you want to see him return to that state of grace where he was this more open guy, emotionally open guy, and just a, just more fun. He, he seems alive here, right. and he seems dead when we first see him, emotionally disconnected. So, so you start to have some stakes in the story because you want to see him get back to that. But again, these are those are the hardest scenes to write. People, people in a good place. Yeah. People who are getting along. That's the hardest. It's so easy to write people arguing. Yeah. Right. Sure. Sure. Because you know, where's the where's the conflict? You know, it's tough tough to do it artfully. But these, but maybe it took you knowing the actors a little bit. I mean, obviously you knew George, but but working with Natasha. But you, you wrote these in post production and in in, when you were in the cutting room already and went back and and did them. But it really it really shows that you know your your journey making this film was about finding the heart of the film. When most people are running back and doing reshoots because the effects don't work or the space stuff's not working or the docking sequence needs a shot of the docking coupler or something, you're going back and, and you know, building in the, in, the, the, in the past relationship, which I think is, in Hollywood, either unheard of or very, very unusual. I had this imaginary friend called Mika Shelley, okay, who used to live under the wallpaper in the corner of the room. <laughs> this was a scene that we shot during principal photography but it was a day at the end of the shoot that I set aside a full day to do improvs with right. George and Natasha. And we did oh, we did a lot of stuff that was really fun and interesting. And this is... They must have loved this. I mean, it's what actors always say they want. 
Yeah, well, I think they did. And and this is a story that, that Natasha improvised that I thought was really interesting and revealing, but in kind of an oblique way, because it's a funny, unusual story, and yet it feels true. I mean, yeah. it feels like something that would happen. And and George came up with a great yeah, line the tag, at the end. Yeah, you were with the right with guy. The right guy. <laughs> which, is, which is great. It's perfect. It's nice, but that, that comes from having mutually created characters and an environment that at the end of a shoot, everybody knows who they are well enough to be able to do that. Do you uh, do you improvise much on on Titanic? You improvise a lot of stuff. I could tell. Uh, you know, <laughs> no. <laughs> well, actually, we were going from historical transcripts for half the dialogue. Oh, really? Yeah, no, no. There's, there's, there's. I, I mean, I like to rehearse because I like to to think. You know what, what the blocking and the lighting and the staging and all that stuff. I like to rehearse way in advance, far enough in advance that people don't that they forget what they've done. Kind of by the time they get yeah. to the set, it's fresh again. But I've kind of got the inside track. But no, it's it's great. I mean, if you have creative actors, I mean, and those are the ones I like to work with the best. They're going to come stuff with stuff. Happens. Yeah. Was that everything? No. This is interesting because this is when he wakes up with her the second time, right? And she's wanting to know what the hell's right. going on. Right. And originally there was a, there was another sex scene here, but you've set it up so that it's kind of like they're just. Essentially, they're kind of sitting around smoking and talking afterwards. Exactly. And, and you get it immediately that that's happened. Have I been? Ill. That gets a laugh. Uh, yeah, if dead, if dead counts as ill. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah. No, and this scene went through a couple of permutations. I ended up there was some additional dialogue again about Solaris and more specific questions about what she's doing here and what it means and why he's here, and and I ended up stripping a lot of it out because I didn't. I don't know. I. I I felt in a way the more, again, the more oblique the dialogue, the better. Yeah, and you simplified him too. I mean, he he's set up in the past as a guy who who questions, who doesn't accept easy answers about God, the universe, that sort of thing. But there's something he evolves fairly quickly to accepting her. He doesn't. He may not understand the terms of it, but his need for her is is you know very clear. And I, I like that. Well, I think it's hard to. It, I'm imagining that it's very hard to argue with the 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 tactile sensation of her actually being next to you. Yeah. That that that's a pretty compelling argument to accepting someone when they're physically. She looks you can right. Feel them. She talks right. Yeah. She's mostly right. <laughs> right enough. She smells right. She feels right. Even though intellectually I know she's dead, it's I can deal with this. It's a male. It's a male thing. I, I think so. Well, I mean that's like you said. I think that was one of the the things we were interested in exploring is the this idea of of romantic love, yeah, as opposed to a more pure form of love that doesn't involve projection and whether or not it's possible to have a love for someone that doesn't involve some amount of projection in both directions. Probably probably romantic love in the in the kind of classical sense of romantic love where people just are willing to die for someone else and make the ultimate sacrifice probably requires a lot of projection as opposed to a more pragmatic love which accepts someone for who they are and sees them clearly and all their faults and differences and, and that sort of thing. But that kind of... This is a wildly passionate film told 
in dispassionate terms, you know, which is what I think is really its its power because it's coming at you on two two completely different levels. And when I say dispassionate terms, I mean the steadiness of the camera, the lack of the music pounding at you and telling you what to feel. And yet in the idea of the story, it's terribly romantic because here's a guy who's willing to, to ultimately make, you know, the ultimate sacrifice for the woman that he loves or the new woman that he loves right. who resembles the old one an awful lot. Changing jobs every three months, all of it. can't put up with is you hiding and this is another sequence that went through a lot of versions because it was it was tricky to find that balance mm -hmm. and and, and mm -hmm. make it clear to the audience that she's sort of being flooded with memories that she doesn't understand and doesn't necessarily feel an emotional connection to and that's what's disturbing about it right. to her is where is this coming from right why is this why am i why do i seem to be at odds and with this man that is four feet away from me that I feel good about. Right. What, what happened? She's she's starting to fill up, and it's it's freaking her out a little bit. Right. And it took me a while to find the rhythm the rhythm of that, how to dip into it and sort of gradually pull the audience in, let the cuts get progressively longer and longer and longer. Of the known universe and enough time, our existence is inevitable. It's no more mysterious than trees. This specific shot of George talking here was a reshoot in post-production because I wanted him to be more articulate in his militant atheism. Yeah, more aggressive. Yeah, um, yeah. And then in the context, again, as a result of reordering in the editing room, she knows she's pregnant now. And to hear him talk in these sort of nihilistic terms mm. is more disturbing than it might be under normal circumstances. Yeah, I think that really emerged as you as you cut and and shot some new scenes. Her emotional dilemma and the stuff that she was responding to and knowing that she's pregnant, uh, there, I think there was a version of the cut where that was revealed later, later. And, and it's it's certainly much more powerful this way and you really feel her being kind of adrift here, you know, in the relationship. Well, you know, I think everybody goes through those moments, which are which are really disordering sometimes and, and disheartening, where you're in a relationship with someone you know well, and and something happens, and you feel like you don't know them right. at all, right? Like they're a stranger, and yeah. how what suddenly a, a sort of a hole opens up in the floor yeah. that you can't uh, explain. And this is a, a scene again. These are not difficult scenes to write where they're at odds. And it's the uh, I don't like your friends scene. Yeah, yeah, which everybody goes through. Yeah, this is the scene that I was thinking about before where, you know, you, you're so clearly jumping back and forth in time and just the visual style of it, you know, really, it, it's so easy to track. And her slow kind of uh, realization in this scene is so powerful because you get that. What's wrong? One of the things that I like about the sort of the metaphorical power of this film is it is that you know you can be married to somebody for twenty five years and not really know them. There's always that doubt that there's an there's an inner kind of bank vault of emotions and and responses that you'll never touch throughout your entire life. You know, so ultimately this is about the unknowability of the other person in a relationship. In the leap of faith that we make, because the options are. Either make that leap of faith or be alone. Yeah, yeah. You may you may be an alien, but you're you know I think I can get past that. <laughs> you know, 
Yes, exactly. Or, or you're alone because you'll never know anybody completely. I'm really, 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 really trying to understand. And, and in the first version of this film, the entire scene played on her close up. I think it went on for four or five minutes, mm. which was interesting, but it was important to see Kelvin's concerted effort to keep it together and to medicate her. Yes, right, right. And he was he was doing his knee jerk shrink reaction, which is this must there must be a drug for this. But it it was mesmerizing watching Natasha just do go that through scene. it in one take. Yeah. yeah, I always love that little flood of light right at that. It's moment. too fast though. Every time I see it, it drives me nuts. It should have been really? much slower. Yeah, oh. the it doesn't time out with the other sequences where we move the sun last like that, and it always bugs me. Yeah, just reshoot it. Oh, okay. <laughs> no, I think it's perfect. But that's and that's one of those situations where you've got an actor, you know, giving a terrific performance, and you've got the eighteen k on a a pedestal with ropes hanging off it. I think you're... you made the right decision to use the shot. <laughs> no, I know, but you're always freaked out that uh, the the six grips that are pulling the various ropes. If the timing's wrong, you've ruined right. a take. We're a little out of sync here, but I I love the way she takes the pill. And she drinks the water first, then takes the pill. And I asked her about this. I said, oh, is that sort of a, if you're created by Solaris, that's how you take a pill? She said, what are you talking about? <laughs> Doesn't said, everybody? Fact, yeah. She, this is how <laughs> Natasha takes pills. Yeah. I, I interpreted it as being like, if you are a really hardcore person who, who has, takes a lot of medication, that's the way you do it. You know, <laughs> like people who are lightly medicated, you know, take the pill, then take the water. Exactly. But if you're hardcore, you, you gotta take the up. water first, right? She's pretty amazing. Amazing to watch. I can see why in the first cut you just held on that on that shot. Yeah, I mean it was um it certainly put you in her mind space, but right. as I said, ultimately it was important to to be in his a little bit as well. But then I you show up and I'm even more more worried. This is this is another sequence that was sort of helped in post production in that I wanted to be able to intercut Kelvin going to get help with her again being flooded right. with memories. You needed you needed a cutaway here, so you created this scene. And I think don't I think eventually you cut the scene into two pieces, right? Yes. Yeah. It used to be one scene and then I, I split it in half. And it was I shot a lot. I mean it was considerably longer than it is now. And again I inverted some of the dialogue, for instance, to put the pregnant line, which used to end mm -hmm. the scene here, to lead into their argument over the abortion. Right. It wouldn't have made any difference. Really? Yeah, I, I watched you focusing in on a structure that um, drove kind of relentlessly toward a conclusion where the present and past stories paralleled much more closely than they did in the, in the script. I think you, you had all the, the game pieces on the table, but they weren't quite in the right pattern yet. These scenes were tricky because they were among the first things that we shot. We right. shot in the apartment the first week, and this would have been day two or three. And, um, you know, I was saying things like, don't let him leave. And I was saying yeah. things to him like, don't let her stop you. Yeah. So she actually rips his button off. You can yeah. hear it hit the floor. Yeah. And, you know, we did nine or ten takes. It was, it was uh, interesting. 
No, it just throws the actors right into it. Gets them. Gets no, I got them. Gets them uh, in the got game. Them pretty hopped up. But I think most difficult for Natasha. George and I have worked together before. I've got a right, crew that I've right. worked with before, and she's coming into a new situation. So I was, I was concerned that she was feeling. Uh, like the odd man out, but she may have benefited her performance, at least in the present Rhea, you know, who who does feel like she doesn't understand her place in the universe and that sort of thing. May have... No, she seemed to uh, to jump right in. Mysterious, but good. Usually very good. Things get solved. Now, did you shoot some of those scenes of their past relationship at the beginning so that they would have that to draw from when you when you went to the the present day stuff on Prometheus? Yeah, that seemed to, when we were scheduling that seemed to to make the most sense. And then there was a practical issue, which is the spaceship Wasn't and the docking <laughs> the docking area weren't done yet. Yeah, right. Because strangely enough, this movie was made in a very compressed period of time. We started shooting in, when was it? April. And, you know, the film came out in November. So it yeah, was... Yeah, it was quick. Things were... <clears throat> the shoot was what, 40... The principal photography was 43 days. Yeah, yeah. And then we did four days of uh, reshoots. Yeah. But you planned on the reshoots. I mean, they yes. were built into the budget. I mean, that's that's yes. your that's your methodology. I which, always do that. Yeah. And death shall have no dominion. This uh, Dylan Thomas poem was really, really a nice. Well, that's find. why I, uh, I think Mike Nichols at the end of the film. I had emailed him when I was working on the script, and I said I need a really interesting romantic uh, death poem. Yeah. And he emailed me back a couple hours later. Try this, try this Dylan Thomas on yeah. for size, and yeah. it was really perfect. I read the rest of the poem, uh, you know, in, in the. Uh, it's a much longer poem than right. what's than what's quoted, and that's certainly the most poignant part of it. And it took me a while to figure out where to use it. I had recordings of both of them doing it. Right. And uh, decided to go with his version for her flashback. Right. Yeah, there's something about the way that he read it that you really felt his loss, his devastation. I came back that day. And this was a scene that went, used to go on for much, much longer. I had a much more involved back and forth about why did you do that? I was angry. I didn't understand. Yeah. And you've, you've cut it down. I cut to it down to lessons. just him yep. apologizing for that, which I think is yep. better. I think people weren't expecting the film to be as kind of emotional and spare in all other ways, other than than that, other than the relationship. Right. You know. Yeah, but I also think it's, um, you know, for a lot of people that that was a difficult thing to get past because it is it is so lean in that regard yeah that's what i loved about sort of running running against the grain well me too but i think in retrospect people needed more preparation for that 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 the fact that the film wasn't finished until very very close to the release date Mm -hmm. meant that maybe we should have pushed maybe we should have had more time to to screen the film and come up with a campaign that gave people a sense of the experience that they were about to have because it was a difficult movie to encapsulate in a poster or a trailer yeah, or a yeah, TV well, we, spot. And and we, we felt that. We'd look at posters and say, well, that gets part of it, but how do you, you know, doesn't get the essence of it. No, I don't think we ever quite solved it. Don't you see that as a problem? I think it's a serious mistake to assume it's benign. 
See, I would have been like Gordon if I was in this situation. Oh, really? Just <laughs> get us out of here. I'd be the rationalist that just wanted to, to, you know, wanted to figure out what subatomic particles they were made out of and just zap them, you know? Well, that's one of the reasons that I cast Viola is that she's, she has to go toe-to-toe with George, and I needed right. somebody yeah. really, really strong. Yep. You know, I'm not unsympathetic toward her. I, no. She has a point. It could chart its course, only take a day or so. Chris, what's she talking about? Well, the, his, the history of civilization on, on our planet is that the more technologically advanced cultures always displace the less technologically advanced cultures. So encountering a Solaris will there will definitely be people who will take the Gordon position and say, we need to destroy this because otherwise we will inevitably be displaced or destroyed. Right. And to, you know, attribute, you know, attribute human, you know, malign reasons for its actions. But, you know, ultimately I think that what's great about this is you never really do know what Solaris is doing. And the, a question was asked, uh, asked of me a couple of times by a couple of different people, you know, good Solaris or bad Solaris at the end of the film? You know, what... Does it? What side? Yeah, you know, I personally think it comes down on the side of being being benevolent, but but you know you could interpret it different ways. There's the Kubrick quote in the interview he did around 2001 where he says, "I don't think the universe is either good or bad. I, I think it's simply indifferent." Right. And Gordon may be right. It may just be playing with them right. out of curiosity, uh, without any real motive other than to learn how human beings react. Well, you get into a kind of religious slash philosophical angst there, you know, where we're we're living, we're living in a reality that may or may not be governed by by a superior being, which may or may not be benevolent, <laughs> you know. And we have to play the same game, but it's a psychology that we're all familiar with as children, you know. We have to we have to key into the psyches of our parents, and they're not always they're not always doing the things we want them to do. They're not giving us the things we want. So we interpret them as being evil at times. Right. You know? But that's because we don't understand. We don't have the fullness of understanding as, as children or as babies. And There's a lot of this scene that, that comes from the book. The biggest change, I think, is that the reveal to Rhea that she was sent away before yes. happens in front of her, yes. which I felt was was important yeah. for, her to, for, for her to experience that publicly. But you set up Kelvin's stakes there when he, when he admonishes uh, Snow not to say anything about that. She must never know about that. So that when you hear, you know, Gordon spill the beans, the audience is there palpably going, uh-oh, uh-oh, you know. Who is it? What is it? That's when I really felt like you'd you'd kind of won the battle of getting the audience participating in their problems. Was when I saw how that all came together, you know. Yeah, I think it would be a little disturbing to find out that some previous version of yourself had been murdered by your husband. Yeah, your spouse. <laughs> exactly. It could uh, put a crimp in the evening. Yeah, she really commands the moment, doesn't she? Yeah. But George is very good in this scene too. He, you know, they they really, uh, they really had equal stature. I felt.
And Jeremy's just taking it all in. Right. He's just absorbing. And there's there's Solaris kind of watching over their shoulders. Now, this is a nice place to move. Yes. I shot a lot of these uh, empty corridors, sort of shining-like right. uh, shots and, you know, was always looking for a place to drop them in. Right. We're coming up here on, again, a scene that I think we... We talked about a lot, which is what we call the Jabarian dream. Right. I love that scene. Scene, which... Um, you pared it down yeah. eventually, but, but uh, I'm, glad you, I'm, I'm glad you left it in. I like this because I always interpreted this as this is, he, gets to, he gets to meet the landlord. He gets to meet Solaris because you know it's not Jabarian. And it doesn't even seem like a construct of Jabarian because his, his whole affect is, is completely different. different. Yeah. yeah, And the way you introduce him this kind of backlight and tells him to to leave the lights off and there's just something very kind of you know mysterious about it that's uh leave the light off the shots of Jabari in there I should probably be paying residuals to uh Gordon Willis the, <laughs> you definitely have that godfather right out of his yeah. uh his arsenal but this was a fun scene to shoot they were both terrific and the, as you said, the interaction was sort of, you felt for a moment anyway that uh, the movie had, had come to some sort of point. No, I think it does. I mean, I think this whole dialogue about the puppet's dream, I think you, in retrospect, even though you wrote it, and I think it's beautifully written, I think in, at, at, there was a certain point in time where you felt like, oh, well, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of telling it too much, or I'm, 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 I'm revealing what I'm, what I'm trying to say. Between oh, that's the coming up. Yeah. <laughs> But but it, uh, you know I think there are I think there are times when if you if you say it if you say it nicely it works and it's it's said it's said beautifully. There was a late addition here again. These things make such a difference. That was why I think having you come in every once in a while to the editing room was really helpful. There was a a line that I added back into this scene very very late, which is I can't leave her. I'll figure it out. Right. And for a long time that those lines were out and right. I put them in right at the last minute and it it helps I mean it helps you understand his situation his, the connection that he feels to her whatever she may be yeah he's, uh, he's and this rational his... side that he can't seem to let go of right he's um yes exactly he's gonna he's gonna figure it out somehow but I related to that as he's taken a stand he's in a sense he's made a decision about her that he's gonna fight for her and uh you know, I think that's an important turn for him. It's not his final decision. He still has, you know, a long way to go, but I think it's an important moment. Maya? There used to be a scene in the early version of the film and in the script, obviously, back when Rhea was sort of uh, having problems determining who she was and that she would she was having memories that weren't hers and he leaves her in the room that she has a total meltdown and destroys the interior of the side of the door right with in a way that strength. Yeah, yeah that is yeah. clearly not human yeah. and then there was this whole sequence where she's checked out in the lab and all outward indications are that she's made of the same things that humans are made of we ended up pulling that out mostly because I felt um, it, it was going too much in the direction of the monster 
sci-fi movie and that it also robbed the sequence coming up of its impact, uh, her resurrection, because you knew that she she could heal herself. Exactly, because you saw it when she when she beat the inside of the door, it, it you saw her hands heal from where they were damaged. And it uh, I remember that very specifically that you you felt that it it took all the mystery out of this scene. I think that was a wise pull. I, re- I resisted it at the time because I like that. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I like that stuff, you know, s- smashing doors and people, you know, hands healing and all that sort of thing. But I think it was a smart move. And I employed a, a cheap trick here that I actually borrowed from the Tarkovsky film when she resurrects in Tarkovsky's Solaris. He shot her backwards. Really? Yeah. Oh, I'll have to go back. And, and I look always at that. remembered that and yeah, thought yeah. that was a really sort of interesting idea because it gave her movement a very creepy quality and it was a it doesn't cost anything. Yeah, and it worked it worked beautifully. I mean her, her feet and hands move in this kind of well, obviously it's the the acceleration curve is reversed. Exactly. So there's this, you know, kind of strange movement. We had a, uh, yeah, we had a couple of mags that were just dedicated to uh, rolling in reverse, and luckily the Panavision cameras can do that without a problem. But I think it was very, <laughs> the, what was it? I had to, I sort of drew for Natasha the, on a, on a piece of paper, the graph chart of what I wanted her, her acceleration curve to be overall in the scene. Right. And then she would have to interpret that in reverse so that it was shot in reverse and played forward it would have the right structure it was a bit it took us a few minutes to sort of organize it in our minds and then George did a great job here of analyzing his movement down on the bed backwards so that it looks like he's going forward like the bend of his arm Uh uh-huh you he don't even I saw him over it. in the yeah. corner, yeah. sort of practicing <laughs> it, and then uh, it was really seamless. Now, do you do you uh, pre-select for actors that can respond to uh, graphic information backwards? <laughs> yes, <laughs> right. If they can understand a bar chart of acceleration curves, then <laughs> I, you'd be surprised what they can uh, what they can handle. Yeah, I always thought this was like this is like the most devastating thing that could happen to a guy. Her eyes settle on you, and she bursts into tears. Yeah, exactly. like no, oh no, it's you. Oh no, it's you. <laughs> no, well, it's a really it's an interesting moment. I mean, as you can imagine, she's uh, assuming that she's ended it and can't. This would again. This is another problem. It's hard. You always, when people talk about, oh, it's so hard to make a romantic comedy now because there are no barriers anymore. There are no right. obstacles. Right. People can get together. I think being immortal is a pretty good one, though. Yeah. And nobody nobody does that right. But, yeah, if you, you know, the question, then there's so many questions, you know, would she age, you know, or does she just stay, stay in the same. fixed state the way he imagined her, you know? at 90 gigahertz and an almost pure beam at 160. This is another scene that I shot. I shot it a couple times. First, I shot it with conventional coverage, which I hated. Then I went back and shot it the way you see it here. Mm-hmm. Then I went back and shot it again in post because you had suggested, or I think you and John and Ray had suggested that then I won't sleep should be on screen. He used to sort of toss it over his shoulder. Right. 
And I felt it was important enough to actually go back and reshoot and have him say it on screen. Yeah, it's my it's my uh, knee jerk commercial instincts that the that the, the audience wants to wants well to considering the direction I was going in it was probably <laughs> wants to a nice balance in the in the guy you know in in him taking a stand and wanting to fight for her. Now here's the infamous C ninety six. Ah yes, I know this was in out in out <laughs> came out very 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 late. I felt here's what I feel ultimately. I think you were right that it should be in the film because it articulates some themes that aren't really articulated elsewhere, I view that as a fault in the writing. I, th I agree that those themes should be in the film. I think the scene as written is not as elegantly laid out as some other scenes in the film. I, don't, I had real trouble figuring out how to shoot it. I settled on a very sort of straightforward style, but I look at it now and I think yeah. in the context of the film, I, fe I feel like it really sticks out. I wish. Yeah, you 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 were never comfortable with with this. I think in its execution, Ever. as opposed to it to its essence, I was responding to George, and just the expression on his face and this kind of there's almost a, a luminance to, to the way that you lit him. He seems he seems tra you know really um, transformed from the way we first saw him as a guy who has animation it's not the he's not the, dead anymore it's yeah. exactly it's not the it's not the light-hearted charismatic kind of you know quippy guy that we see in the past it's a new guy who's got a mission and and believes something and a guy who's never really believed anything you know i thought that i thought that was interesting no and i agree that that you need that on the ship you need that moment of his deciding you know that that i'm i'm gonna go with it through to the end, whatever that means. I just think I should have come up with a better way to do it. Solaris looks really different there. It's got it's full of reds now, and there's starting like, to get uh, upset, right, or something, or interested. Yes. This is something we came back and reshot because in the original version, the door was still mangled from when she had uh, been trapped in the room. So I went back and did this again. We we explored fixing it with CG, but there was so much movement in the shot with George actually sliding down against the door that we determined it would be simpler to reshoot it. The problem is I find, other than that, I was really happy with the scene. I liked the way it was lit. I liked yeah. the way it was performed. Yeah. And when you go back and try and recreate something that you actually you liked, liked, yeah, right, it's right. terrifying. Well, you have this you, you have this almost certain dread that you'll never get it again. Even though it's the same, the same smart, talented people that did it the first time, you know, and there's no doubt that you'll get it again. Um, uh, but I was really, because I, yeah, we had all the Polaroids, we had the clips, we had everything, but it was, I was really, really worried that we weren't going to get it the same. And as it turned out, we did. And then I rewrote in post production from the point George leaves the sink, I rewrote all of Rhea's dialogue here to make it much more about this specific dilemma. We mm -hmm. can't stay here. Yep. We can't go, but what are you going to put me through customs? Yeah, you know, we yeah, can't go back. Yeah. What are we going to do? And yeah, he, uh, that was a good discovery too, which is that she really outlines the fact that this is an impossible situation. And the rational part of his mind knows that she's right, but he's stubborn here. You know, he's starting to, he's starting to let his emotions rule him, which is nice. Cause she's now actually being the rational one. Right. They've shifted. Yeah. Just lie down for a moment. Please, Chris. 
I'll show the shark here and say that I always viewed this sequence coming up as a hallucination basically bookended by these shots of Solaris. You'll mm -hmm. notice mm -hmm. if you watch closely, the sequence starts with the shot of Solaris and ends with the shot of Solaris. And so I always viewed this sequence as a completely subjective internal experience of his that is in no way meant to be literal. Right. Well, you give clues to that in, in the way that she's displaced around the room and, and well, just that primarily. I mean, she's in one place and right. she's in another place. So clearly there's something delusional happening here. And you put the door shot in. Well, but, that's that was one of the, this is one of the, in my mind, one of the happy accidents that, that occur sometimes. This door shot coming up, panning from George, I actually left the mangled door in because I thought as an expression of his anxiety about what's happening, that it was interesting. Yeah. And so... Uh, but see, now you've given it away because people could have people could have been wondering about that bloody door for years, you know? <laughs> well, I, you know, I don't want them... Uh, no, but it's a they good... Have, they have more important things to worry about. <laughs> yeah, but it's a good illumination of the, of the filmmaking process. It's an accident that the door was in that shot. Most people would have just automatically reshot it with the door and and you saw the potential of well wait a minute this is a hallucination he could see that kind of manifestation of his you know inner inner turmoil externalizing in the environment right and this for me again is one of my one of the sequences in the film that I'm most happy with because it is again there's no dialogue it's sort of just pure cinema images and and taking you taking you on a ride, yeah. basically. Greg Jacobs, our executive producer and AD, actually had a great note for this sequence because the, the shots of Kelvin used to be in the environment to match hers. Mm -hmm. He was in the train, right. he was in the apartment back on Earth, and Greg said, you know, I think it's, he was on the street, and Greg said, you know, I think this idea that he's re-experiencing her is clearer if he doesn't go anywhere yep, yep. and he was absolutely right it really it really helped the sequence a lot i know that when three versions of the person i'm involved with show up in a room that i get a little uh, i get a little antsy <laughs> i haven't had that happen Stephen. does this happen to you often uh yeah <laughs> that's another conversation <laughs> it's a really simple effect but a very creepy psychological situation to find yourself in. Yeah, absolutely. Now, was this a motion control effect? Motion control yeah. shot. Yeah. Three takes, four takes, one of each of her and then a clean one without her in it at all. Right, right. Which we had to redo, actually, because of a, a motor error. Uh-oh. There used to be narration here from George in early versions of the film, and... I remember having a meeting over at 20th Century Fox. We just screened another version of the film. And there was a lot of discussion about this sequence, what it meant, mm -hmm. what was it trying to do. And there was this narration from George talking about being in the moment of his own, am I in the moment of my own death? Right. Is this the last thought I will ever have? And um, Hutch Parker at Fox, in, in the midst of this discussion about why isn't the sequence flowing the way it should, said, why don't you just get rid of the narration? And everybody in the room that worked for Fox mm -hmm. turned their head toward him like, what did you just, how could you, are, why would you say that out loud? Because as soon as he said it, I thought, well, that's exactly what we should do, that actually the sequence in some sort of weird emotional sense 
does flow, the narration is pulling us out of it and making us think. Yeah. Yep. And uh, without changing a frame, I just pulled the narration out, and suddenly you understood, I think, that there's a gauntlet that he has to run yes. in order to get to the other side, which is exper re-experiencing this moment. Of that finding he's, her, which yeah. is his most traumatic moment in his in his that life. That he can't probably. escape her until right. You right. know, he's, he's relived this. He's gone through that that. Um, re-experienced it yeah and i actually thought that the narration worked oh i love this moment where he he doesn't want to touch her because he doesn't want her to be cold and he pulls back and then he has to do it i thought george did a really nice job with it was that great moment. here yeah. again this is like the first couple of days of shooting it was yeah. really yeah tricky that's, stuff it's a beautiful moment But I thought that the, the, the narration actually, since it, since the narration was written to be about him, whereas really he's on a quest to to relive this moment. I mean, that's how you... It kind of shrank the sequence, yeah, it's, I think, it, was the problem. Yeah, it was a good call. Yeah, this is a beautiful scene. I love you dropping way back outside the window. And here's our bookend, our Solaris yeah. bookend. Yeah, it almost puts him in a little diorama that's inside Solaris's consciousness. Right. That's exactly what I was thinking. <laughs> <laughs> I think it said that in the script, actually. Yeah. No, what's what's amazing is how remarkably specific the script was, and, and it always was. I mean, right down to the way in which the shots would be would be composed and how the how the nonlinear cutting was going to work. Now you went off it, right. you know, quite a ways, but but it was it never went off it in a way that was inconsistent with what was in the, the even the very first draft. Well, and and as you know, but probably not many other people know, the script was 75 pages long, which is 20 to 30 pages shorter than a normal script because, as I explained to everyone, the, the rhythm of the film will fill it out to feature length, but I wanted to build in that, that cushion. I think you wanted to give yourself permission as uh, on the set and, and in the way that you compose the shots to have that time to create that rhythm to have have shots hang to play the environment and you knew that the only way to do that if you if you wrote a 120 page script you were going to be constantly nibbling right. at it and you'd lose all that which is what always happens to me because <laughs> I try to have everything to see but you're you're smart you knew that you'd have to you'd have to sacrifice a lot of a lot of dialogue content in right. order to, to make that possible. Well, it was an, an interesting uh, test. And again, here I added to her narration a little bit to clarify their their dilemma and, and to have her hint that there might be something else. Right. But not directly. At least her longing for it was, yes. was important. This is another scene that I shot. I think three times this I don't know it's just difficult to find that balance between you know where should the camera be I didn't want to be cutting a lot right I wanted them to be able to play it we're in a room that is 25 degrees um, and so your thought process is slow down either slower or quicker I yeah. can't figure out which and I want to win I want humans to win whose side are you on but she's uh, she's getting her way now now I'm assuming that this room was chilled as a, as a kind of um, uh, a cryogenic environment for the AI. Is that right? Was that the our theory? theory in in reading about you know the kind of massive and powerful 
hard drives that we'll have in the future is that they need to be sub-zero. Right, that, that they're, they're superconducting, so yeah. yeah, they're bathed in... So that's know. what Phil was going off of, that they're all... Those, those blocks that are standing four feet up on both sides of the room are just enormous hard drives. Right. This is the toughest thing for an actor is to, is oh. to, is to see oh, yeah. something for the first time like this. Yeah, It really is. But they did it so well, I played yeah. it all on their yeah, reactions. Yeah. It's an, here's another tough thing to do. Be frozen. Yeah. How long do you think he's been dead? But uh, Jeremy... He looks, he looks pretty frozen. Jeremy nailed it. Yeah. I think he, he got a kick out of that, actually. Attack. I think, I think uh, well, people always want to imagine what they... They don't want to, they don't want to, but they find themselves thinking about, what would I look like dead? Right. You know, what would I look like on the morgue slab, you know? Actors get to do all the stuff they do. that they most get of to, us just you know, think they, about. They get to have these wonderful, vicarious uh, experiences and have a record of it. Yeah, exactly. I think Jeremy's really terrific in this yeah. scene. I, I covered him pretty extensively because I, I wanted to retain as much of it as I could. Well, this is the action scene. Yeah, exactly. And it this is. is our this version is, of this an action is the guy. Scene. This is the guy fighting for his life. Normally, you know, in a normal movie, a knife they'd fight. be chasing him around the, the ship. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, he evokes a whole, you know, dramatic thing and just does it all with this kind of disconnected stream of consciousness thought process. Right. That was a nice time cut, nice jump cut there. Yeah, this, I restructured this monologue a bit and, and trimmed it down. But um, Jeremy's one of those people where I think he he's rarely satisfied. He rarely, uh, he rarely walks away feeling like he nailed it. And I found myself often having to say, I've got it. Don't yeah, worry. Right, I've, right. We're going to be fine. Yes. He, would, he would be saying, okay, well, I just hope everybody's going to be here for reshoots. Um, and well, the best actors beat them up, beat themselves up that way. Or no, some, some of them do. Some of them are, are so good at their craft in a sense that they, that they have enough self-knowledge that they know when they've got it right. And others are constantly on a quest. And I think both, both will get you there yeah. to great work. Well, and then, there, you know, it's, it's you never or I never want to be in the situation as a director of having to say a lot. Just trust me. Right. I mean, you want to you want to have them trust you, but but to ask for it, you feel a little bit like a used car salesman. Yeah. Um, and so, but I did find myself saying to Jeremy, "We've got it. I've got. I've, I was looking through the lens. Literally, I, we have it." Well, that helps when you operate. Do, do you operate all your shots? Yeah. I think you, yeah. Except the ones uh, on a geared head. I can't work a geared head. Yeah. I like to have my eye up when it's a performance, when it's a tight performance moment. I think it gives the actors a certain confidence that they... Well, they know you saw it. Yeah, exactly. Now, it's interesting working in HD because <laughs> you don't have to have your eye to the eyepiece, but you see it as clearly. Right. But, but that's going to that's gonna change people's perceptions, I think. He's He was so nice there toward, toward the end where he just says, well, you know, what I'd do. <laughs> yeah, well, he's going home, so yeah. I don't think he cares. Here's a, here's my sop to an action sequence. Two shots of people on a ladder. Right, right. That's that's our action with sequence. Some fast, with some fast music. Yeah. Oh, wait, we have two more here, putting on helmets. This is... Uh, yeah, but it's not done in that style of, you know, quick cuts and stuff being slammed toward the lens. It's 
These are obviously all uh, CG shots. And Cinecide did a great job of sort of blending, you know, adding the bleed and the reflections right. and, and all that so that it feels fairly organic. And here, late, late in uh, in editing, I'd recorded all this dialogue that, that we'd gotten from our consultant at JPL. Was that Rich Terrell? Yeah, Rich. Yeah. And um, there used to be her imploring Calvin to come on, come on. Right. And uh, right. I took that out because it kind of, I don't know, it, it took away from his decision or his, or his difficulty in making a decision. Right. And in point of fact, I don't think she would really care if he came or not. No. Plus it becomes that kind of litany, the litany of the launch. It's like, it's like a countdown. It right. Cre it creates tension, but. Now here we are back on Earth. Earth. This is my idea that we're now back at the beginning of the film, that there's been a, a large loop within several other loops, and that when we saw him on the bed at the beginning of the film, it's from this point mm -hmm. where he's back on Earth. Or he thinks he is. He thinks. You've seen the film. You know what we're talking about. Um, <laughs> well, but they're anyway, not going to be listening to this track if they're just watching it for the first time. Yeah, so we can, I hope we not. can do spoilers. God, that would be bad. But that anyway, that's for, for anybody who cares. That was my thinking that the film was one large loop that that close is, is now closing, that we're now in, in the present for the first time right. in my mind. Stand. This is a beautiful shot. Form the millions of gestures this one took me a while to I had a huge crane, I had all this stuff, and it turned out to be a dolly on the landing. I should mention, we haven't talked about, because the the audio in our headsets is so low, the score plays an enormous part in the film. And I mention it because particularly I love this piece here, which has a, a just fantastic haunting oh, sure. quality. But Cliff Martinez really uh, hit one out of deep left center. Well, it has a melancholy quality, but at the same time, there's there's movement in it, which means that he, he he's still thinking, he's still processing, he's still trying to figure it out. That's what I get from from that from that music. I tempt the film with a lot of tracks from this composer Ligeti, mm -hmm. who uh, most people would know from uh, the pieces used by Kubrick in two thousand one, and and they worked really well. But he's a very odd composer. Fortunately, Cliff did an enormous amount of research into his composition mm -hmm. methods and how he uses note clusters and chord mm -hmm. clusters right, right. that are not what most composers use. And uh, he just did an amazing job of recreating that sound. And yet, you know, I was relying on Cliff to really impart a lot of narrative information because there are these extended sequences mm -hmm. where nobody talks. Right. And a lot of your clues are being given by the music, which yeah. is referencing other sequences in the film. I and like here that. we have a scene coming up. There's, we're about to go into an eight-minute music cue, which for a composer is a really scary proposition. It's terrifying, sure, because how do you evolve over eight minutes? The reveal of the uh, of the cut finger, I think, is one of the one of the brilliant things that that you added. That he's that given, was, uh, he's given a tangible clue that that uh, you know he's in a different reality. A different... Well, that's something that actually came up in one of our non rehearsals when I had all the actors together, George. Because that wasn't in the last draft, and George said, "God, don't you feel like we need a really clear?" 
clue that he's not actually back on Earth? What if he cut his finger? And and as soon as he said it, I thought, yeah. oh, that's a great... Because yeah. I love when an action is repeated yep. with a different result. Mm -hmm. So i got to give GC props there. Yeah. Well, he's he's not only is he a good actor, he's a smart guy. Yeah. He's a, he's a thinking filmmaker. And again, even dealing with visual effects companies, we had shot... This is a shot that goes on for a long time, which... And in the docking sequence, you have extended shots, and yeah. that's unusual these days. Yeah, and the ship doesn't exist as a physical model. It's a, it's a computer graphics model, which allows you to do stuff like that, I think. I had a fantasy that we would go back and that we would actually do some of these on film because I think there is an interesting quality to that, but it would take forever and be really expensive. <laughs> Especially such a spidery construct. I mean, you, you, you these are ships that would only can only exist in space. Right. Exactly. Again, talk about for an actor. This is so hard. We had white noise being pumped into the set mm -hmm. at a pretty loud level to mm -hmm. help George, but it's really hard not to feel like an idiot. You know, sort of screaming your head off and falling to the ground. I always like this moment where where Snow sees his maker. Well, it's sort of... I felt it was important when we were shooting it that he not be afraid, ultimately. Yeah. yeah. That, that for the audience, for them to realize, well, if he's embracing this in some weird way, then it's, it's, it's not going to be terrible. Now, there's been some amount of discussion, at least amongst the people who worked on the movie, about the, uh, the boy's appearance here. Obviously, it's Jabarian's son, but I remember after one friend of mine saw the film, they interpreted it as being Calvin and Rhea's child, Lost the child, child they never yeah. had. That never occurred to me, but that's I think that's a beautiful interpretation, and it really shows how people will project onto a film, you know, how, how a really good a really good film that doesn't beat you over the head with its with its nicely tied in a bow answers uh, can act like a Rorschach, and people can can project onto it. I, I just thought it was a neat choice that this is how Solaris chose to project to help itself him and yeah. to help him cross over. I yeah. guess is the expression. Sure, and there's and there's certainly a lot of uh, uh, you know in in uh, religious imagery and in mythology images of the of the child that's you know an angel or um, a representative of of God or the gods. And again, that's a sequence that, frankly, without the score doesn't play as well as it needs to. I like the way there's still an element of choice implied that he can take the hand or not. Nice. Solaris is giving him a choice. Even though the ship is plunging into Solaris, there's some kind of choice that he's got to make there. Again, really tricky scenes for actors playing emotional scenes into a camera that's, you yeah. know, 20 inches from your nose. Yeah. You have him right on the lens here too, yeah. right? Yeah. So George, you know, is looking he's at looking, a reflection look, of himself. looking which at is, a piece of glass. Yeah, yeah which right. is really difficult. Yeah. Now, she's not on the lens. She's off off on an island to him, right? No, they're both. No, they're both they're right both on the lens. In the yeah. lens. yeah. It's a powerful technique, and most people aren't, you know, they're not consciously aware of it, but they know that there's something well, you have to be... galvanizing about the image. Yeah, I think you have to be 
careful about when you use it. I was channel surfing the other night and saw that in Spellbound, the Hitchcock film, that he uses it at a, a key point that Gregory oh, Peck and Ingrid Bergman look right into the lens oh. and have this very intense oh. exchange. In case anybody was under the impression that this is a new idea, it's actually five decades old. Well, there are no new ideas. No. Unfortunately, we're 100 years into the, into the whole filmmaking process now. Again, uh, partway through the editing process, I decided to close with these three shots of Solaris to help people be sure about the fact that they've that he never left. Yeah. Basically, that yeah. he never left the ship. And again, it's a very, you know, it's a very sort of quiet conclusion which uh, which I like, but yeah, I like these three shots of Solaris. I mean, I like the ending because it it really taps into, I think, you know, a powerful human belief whether you're religious or, or, or an atheist or a spiritual or whatever you want to call it, that there is the possibility somehow for some reunion with, with loved ones. I mean, I think we all want to believe that, whether we believe it rationally or not. Well, I was sort of operating on the assumption or the belief that, that we sort of move into a a state of almost pure thought that exists separately from any of our traditional ideas of consciousness. Mm -hmm. I don't have all the data yet. Um, <laughs> but, uh, well, let us know. Yeah, I will. Try to get us a message when you're from yeah, the other side. Exactly. And we'd appreciate that. But of course, you're, you're younger than me, so I might be your point man in infinity there. Well, then you let me know. Okay. I think Houdini made this kind of deal with uh, with his wife, but it didn't work out for Yeah. Before. Are we sure that he... Uh, she knew, did he like write down how he was going to contact her? There was like a whole thing worked out, but apparently okay. it never happened. Oh, so. darn. But probably, you know, when you get to the other side, you have an epiphany and you realize that stuff's not important, so you just don't do it. Exactly. Yeah. I also wanted to, uh, I was very intent on having the, the largest type font for the end credits ever seen in cinema. You have to pay extra for that for font that big. It's pretty big. Yeah. But I miss that. And <laughs> this is a real this type style which I chose very specifically is a very uh, 70s type style. It's a Helvetica Superlight yeah. that you'd see a lot. I'm trying to bring it back. Are you like a font snob? Yeah, I can I have to say I'm a font snob. If I'm watching a movie and at the beginning of it the credits are in a font that I think is really you just storm out. well I uh, I'm, I'm upset really uh, yeah <laughs> I, I feel like that stuff's important it's part of the aesthetic of the movie and if you come up with a, a crummy looking font or a cheap looking font yeah. I, I get a little irritated I'm gonna have to check my fonts more carefully now that I realize that's an issue um, well you know when you only have five actors in a film you can afford to have <laughs> big font that's big true. letters yeah So, so oh, those now, poor now, bastards. I mean, these guys have a little tiny print. Now that you've drawn attention to it, yeah. Well, I mean, if know. they ever get this DVD, they're going to feel really slighted. You can, you, know? you, you can still make out their names. Yeah. Well, now you have two minutes to tell me what to, to give me the your version of the movie. <laughs> oh, thanks. You had two hours. <laughs> pitch me. You've come in to pitch me <laughs> oh. your version of Solaris. 
Oh, that's that, I don't even remember. I, I mean, it would have had. Had you done a lot of sort of conceptual <clears throat> thinking about it? Or? A little bit, a little bit. I mean, for me, the idea of an intelligent ocean is something that resonated. That I, I even used a little bit of that idea in the abyss with the water that that is sort of animated and and, and is used as a kind of visual communication tool. So, I like the idea that you had this this intelligent ocean. Uh, you know, the, the planet itself was inert. The ocean had, had was was the um, the entity, and so I mean, it would have been much more literal, not not as not as metaphysical, not as not as spiritual. Probably emotional in the sense that I'm you know I'm always a sucker for a good for a good love story, and that's that's part of what attracted me to it. But I didn't go very far down that down that road. But you know, Lem Lem you know had the had the ocean creating huge constructs and things like that and and basically just defying any attempt by the by the the pitiful humans to try to figure out what it was why it was doing those things i mean i like that enigmatic quality and i think you got that that enigmatic quality in a in a completely different way but i remember early on honestly being a little disappointed at, at the idea that you weren't going to set it on the planet that you were going to you were going to keep the planet kind of outside the window but in a way it's it's very powerful. I mean, I now love it, but in a way, it's very powerful because in a way, you make the planet a character. It's like you, you know, when you cut to a character, you cut to somebody across the room, you cut to Solaris there outside. It's outside the window. In a way, it makes it a it makes it a character. It gives it a locus. Whereas it's hard to think of the landscape that you're standing on as a character. So right. I think that was really a, really a smart move. But you know, I I can't even. Rem- I mean, to me, this is this is Solaris now. You know what I mean? It's right. like it's like it it overwrites any any prior concepts in a way that you know this is now this is the film that that you made and that that I feel is you know a small a small contribution to but but you know one percent well I think it's more than one percent two percent okay well apparently Lem who's still alive has yet to see the film but we're not supposed to take that personally because apparently he hasn't seen any film in 30 years I'm told through people that that have communicated with him that the last two films he saw actually were 2001 and Last Tango in Paris. <laughs> Which um, if you threw it in a blender yeah, would might... would be the the first draft yes, of ex- this. Yes. Exactly. So we're uh, we're trying to organize uh, a screening for him because we're all kind of curious to see what he would think. Apparently the Fox International people told me that two of his emissaries went and saw the film and liked it and have told him that they liked it, but he hasn't seen it yet. So there may be a trip to Poland in my future. We should record his reactions in real time and do an alternate, you know, common commentary. commentary. Oh, that would be a great idea. <laughs> At least for the Polish release of the And DVD. not translate it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, yeah. Then we can assume he's saying nice things. I, I'm going to. Well, if you've made it this far... We're impressed. It's going to be hard to screw up at this point. I don't know. It's just uh, another version of two white guys sitting around talking. Exactly. I know. And people buy this stuff, right? Apparently. Good. Well, it's been fun.